politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman yearning to live free once again. Those of you looking for life, liberty, property, the issues that matter and the way they matter at the time they matter, we are serving full course turkey today, Thanksgiving Eve on Wednesday. And folks, this is a time when we all should feel like pilgrims. Except there's one difference. See, during the time of the pilgrims in the 1600s, there was still a new world in the Western Hemisphere to discover. Now we don't have anywhere to go for liberty, for freedom, religious and civil freedoms. We don't, we don't have any place to go. We have nowhere else to run or to hide. So we are the pilgrims once again, but we are pilgrims in our own land who need to reinvent morality, reinvent the desire from the people to pursue God's divine providence. And that really is the lesson of Thanksgiving. Uh, Really glad to have you guys back here today. Obviously, we'll be off like everyone else Thursday and Friday. We're going to have a special show with Dr. Ryan Cole, kind of an update on everything, all things medical freedom, COVID poison shots, and COVID in general. But before then, I just want to frame kind of the time we're living in. Um, You know, when the pilgrims got off the ship, according to historians at least, they immediately read Psalm 107. Bradford and and the men there give thanks to the Lord because he is good for his kindness is eternal. Those redeemed by the Lord shall say it, those whom he redeemed from the hands of an oppressor. And it's something I think we should all say on Thanksgiving. And what is shocking when you look to the extent that we've become new pilgrims in our own land that was founded upon the recognition of God's providence, the recognition that in order to get blessing and bounty, we need to be deserving of God's providence, his goodness. We need to seek out his goodness. We need to uh, beseech him for it. And then certainly we need to thank him for it. That was that was basically the message of Thanksgiving since, uh, since it began. It began in 1787 when our uh, forefathers in the Continental Congress, even before the nation was founded, sought to establish a day of Thanksgiving. It wasn't established as a specific day until much later but it uh you know was usually around the fall time taken from um you know the the Jewish holiday uh which which usually falls out around October time thanking God for a harvest and then George Washington obviously issued the first proclamation as a country on October 3rd to be observed on November 26th, which is roughly when it wound up being observed again after the Civil War. And what was the nature of the day? It was to beseech God to pardon our national and other transgressions and to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. There's no way to escape that that was our founding and that is the source of thanksgiving. The day of prayer and thanksgiving to God, in the words of Roger Sherman, 
uh, during the House debate on that resolution, he said was to replicate through the celebration of the Constitution the solemn thanksgivings and rejoicings which took place in the time of Solomon after the building of the temple, a precedent and holy writ worthy of Christian imitation on the present occasion. And obviously, as late as 1986, we still had presidents really, um, through Reagan, underscoring this. Reagan wrote in 1986 during his Thanksgiving proclamation that no custom reveals our character as a nation so clearly as our celebration on Thanksgiving Day. It's rooted deeply in our Judeo-Christian heritage, underscores our unshakable belief in God as the foundation of our nation. So it was, it was always understood that God was the foundation of our nation, our blessing, and the reason why America was blessed more than any other nation, God bless America, is because we beseeched him more, believed in him more, and thanked him more. And you look now that we've been turned away from our own country, and we are pilgrims once again, because we have a nation that has turned away from God. And, and how sickeningly ironic that on this very week they broke from their process of redefining marriage for Thanksgiving. All of them are going to celebrate Thanksgiving in some way, increasingly more in a pagan way, overshadowed by other customs and uh, um, you know just Black Friday and indulgence like that in general. But the irony is they are picking the thing that throughout the Bible has angered God more than anything, the proliferation of homosexuality and the obsession with it. And now, even if you're not particularly religious, you could appreciate what it's done to the culture. Uh, 21% of all Gen Z people identifying as anything but normal that can't even procreate anymore. How anyone could view that as something that is going to be deserving of divine providence is insane. So if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, that's fine. But if you do, you can't deny where it comes from. And that's kind of where we are today. God will not bless this country if we don't turn to him. And at least pretend to be worthy of his blessing. Yet despite it all, he still gives us more freedom and prosperity than relatively other countries. And it's a sign that we're not done yet. And we must use that blessing, that residual slight remnants of freedom through federalism, through some of the states with more opportunities to fight like the Dickens, to actually be worthy of God's blessing. And that's what it is. Ultimately, that's what we're thankful for. You know, we thank a lot of people, thankful for human beings, and that's that's appropriate, that's fine, but... The, the point of the day is one thing. It's to be thankful that despite everything being so bad, you know, you listen to all those videos of the World Economic Forum and not just listening to their threats, but what they're actually doing, the walls closing in upon us on health, life, property, food, fuel. And they're doing it on purpose. Hack our brains. Hack into our skin. Surveil us, transhumanism. There's no hope if you just extirpate God from your consciousness. But what we're thankful for is that they could plot all they want. But at the end of the day, nothing could happen 
if God doesn't will it. Now, does it mean we just step back and just say, let's just pray? Well, we need to do a lot more of that. And that's what Thanksgiving was. It was a day of actually, you know, it became a day of feasting, which is fine. But but initially, it was, uh, they had days of fasting. And I do think at some point it is appropriate that we should declare maybe a day of fast and prayer to turn back to God so that God, you know, we, we cannot help what half or two-thirds of the country does but at least to pardon the sins on behalf of those who do attempt in our meager way to return to God. And through that, we'll be worthy of his blessing. And part of that is demonstrating that we are not okay with what's going on. We don't want this. We want something better. We don't support homosexual agenda. No, the only problem with it is not just female sports. That we ourselves return to a sense of purity, a sense of purpose. And that in itself will make us somewhat deserving in God's eyes of safety, prosperity, deliverance from from tyranny. It It all comes back to the foundation there. A day of prayer, a day of thanksgiving, a day of fasting. And ultimately, that's what we're thankful for. For not being at the mercy of the capricious and evil whims of human beings. We're not. God is in control. But only if, A, we recognize that fact, and then act in a way that makes us worthy of it. Both introspection internally in our own lives, but also on the geopolitical scene, demonstrating we're not okay with this. We're not okay with a 50% version of what evil is doing. In areas where we are the majority, we are going to live in accordance with those principles. That we're like a son to a father. That we thank God that we're not left to the mere chance of primate instincts of the most evil among us, even though it looks like it sometimes. But that we could always return to him and he'll accept us. That is what Thanksgiving is about in terms of what our founders envisioned. It's rooted in the Bible, rooted in biblical values, and there's nowhere else to turn from there. Everything else is noise. You can have nice customs, and that's fine. But that is the most important aspect of this. Because without that, we're, we're lost. There is no political solution. But, but returning back to politics, obviously it's a very, very quiet day. But it's not so quiet. Before we bring on Ryan Cole, I just want to note, this is news that they break while everyone's not paying attention. The more it turns out that the shots are poison beyond belief, the more they get away with promoting it even more. We thought, oh, by now the CMS mandates have to go away. No, they're expanding them. This is from Epic Times. The White House on November 22nd announced a new enforcement guidance on COVID-19 vaccine mandates for nursing home residents and staff. 
and announced new enforcement guidance to ensure nursing homes are offering updated COVID-19 vaccines and timely treatment to their residents and staff. It stated that CMS still requires nursing homes to educate their residents on COVID-19 vaccines. CMS will issue guidance today reminding healthcare providers of this requirement. In its guidance, CMS will make clear that nursing homes with low vaccination rates will be referred to state survey agencies for close scrutiny and that facilities that do not comply with the requirement to offer and educate on the benefit of life-saving COVID-19 vaccines will face enforcement actions, including the need to submit corrective action plans to achieve compliance. They didn't elaborate on what those enforcement actions are, but as you could tell, this is something that requires the cooperation of states. You should have had by this morning every single state release a statement, red state at least, that this is, this is not happening. But I didn't see that. And again, everyone's still on, okay, maybe the younger people shouldn't get it. But the nursing home, oh, they need it. Are you kidding me? That's the quickest way to exacerbate their death. And, and it literally doesn't work anyway. I mean, even if it did work, it would be a problem. Is negative efficacy for COVID causes other respiratory vir- viruses. And then any amount of damaging every organ system in the entire human body. What needs to happen is a plan to boost their vitamin D levels. So this fight is not, not over. It's just beginning. It is shocking how much we know about the shots, and yet the momentum against it at a political level, at a policy level, has stalled out. Every red state but Florida is now behind Australia in terms of its guidance on the vaccines. They're still promoting it on children. Every red state health department. If you live in a red state, look up your health department website and you'll see it. Prominently displayed, maybe next to monkeypox and and any other amount of nonsense that they promote. So we need to be pilgrims in in our own land, land our own boats, return to God, and reclaim the land that we have because we have no other place to travel to. So that's one thing there. Another story, interesting story, uh, Jessica Rose has it on her substack. But it turns out that the VAERS foreign data has now been scrubbed in a way that you can't query a lot of different things. So all the analysis we're doing on VAERS, they just scrubbed it. They said, oh, the Europeans didn't like certain data coming out from the foreign data. And and I bring this up just because there's a lot of talk about Arizona and election fraud. And <laughs> Everyone's wondering, oh, could government do it? Do they have the ability? Would they do it? And if you look at what they've done on COVID and COVID data that affected humanity and lives a lot more than even any election could, of course they can, and of course they do. Election fraud is the least nefarious thing they've done to us. So, I mean, obviously that's something we're going to be following next week. We're kind of sandwiched in here because after... Uh, Thanksgiving is a torrent of lame duck fascism we have to watch out in Congress. And then immediately after Christmas is going to be the mobilization that we have to mobilize for the red state legislative sessions. So much at stake. But we ourselves have been diffident in our own views. 
this is two years into the vaccine, and it still has not become the same dirty word as abortion in red states, and we have more data than you could ever imagine. Jim Justice, that animal, animal rhino from hell, governor of West Virginia, he's to the left of Biden. If you remember, this man said that he was upset that Biden, with a slip of the tongue, admitted that the emergency for COVID was over. He's like, how do you say that? We need more vaccines. He announced that, so he's going to be term limited this next election. So we're like, oh man, maybe finally we can make West Virginia a red state. He wants to run for Senate. That should be dead on arrival. He's literally, there's not a dime's worth of difference between him and Joe Manchin. Now I know Alex Mooney, who's somewhat conservative congressman from there, he's probably the best you have in West Virginia, announced he wants to run for Senate. Normally I'd say you have to go in all in for Mooney to block justice, but I'm wondering again if the Senate is a lost cause anyway. You know what? Flush him out there. Maybe have Mooney change and run for governor. Who knows? But that's something to watch for then. But there, there is so much going on. You know, there's a study out of uh, the St. Louis VA. If you want to look it up, it's titled Acute and Post-Acute Sequelae Associated with SARS-CoV-2 Reinfection. So this is about the risk of severe outcomes in COVID reinfection. So it's very rare that, you know, you get have COVID and then you get it again a second time for it to be severe. That's extremely rare. And they wanted to quantify it. And what's interesting is if you look at Supplemental Table 4, it shows a 35% increase in mortality among one people at one dose over no dose. Meaning they got COVID, they got the shot, and then they had a reinfection. They're 35 times more, 35% more likely to um, die from COVID, even on reinfection, having had one shot, and 18% more likely if they had two. But what, what the 35 with the one shows you is that it's probably the timeline. If you look, like we see with everything, beyond a four to six month window, I'm sure the two dose is even worse than the one dose. So that, that's what we keep seeing. So again, it makes it more likely you're going to die of COVID, even if you already had it. That's how bad this is. So I could go on and on with all this stuff. But obviously, you know, I wanted to get to, uh, I know we solicited a lot of questions from you, and I'm going to try to get in as much as I can in these uh, 40 minutes or so with Dr. Cole to to answer all your questions on, on, on vaccine injury. So while Thanksgiving is mainly about giving thanks to God, it is important to thank the people in your life that have made an impact. And as I've said before, one of the people that really served as a game changer in my life was Dr. Ryan Cole, our beloved pathologist from Idaho. Uh, it's funny, yesterday we had a guest on from Idaho, very appropriately talking about this from the legal aspect in a red state. Well, today we'll go into the medical side of things, both in a red state and everywhere else. Um, But the thing about Ryan is that he really gave me the confidence to speak about something that is well beyond my area of expertise with a degree of confidence 
that I think a lot of us laymen were able to go out and 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 give a message out to the broad public that wouldn't have gotten out otherwise. And to give it over in such a way that clicked with me that I felt so confident. I never told you guys about this, but, you know, it's funny. One time, uh, one in America's News Network, one of the shows there, they were going to do a debate with an FDA doctor. I don't know what type of doctor it was. And when the guy heard that it was going to be with me, he canceled. Um, and that's kind of pathetic. I mean, come on, he's a doctor. I'm a nobody. I'm just a political guy. What do you care? But, you know, we were able to assert things with so so much confidence um, that they were scared because they didn't have facts on their side. And a lot of this came from Dr. Cole and several others. So I've, I've read some of your questions. We're going to try to get as much as we can out with the limited time we have. Dr. Cole, back by popular demand. Thanks so much for joining us today. And happy Thanksgiving. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, Daniel, and to your audience and to everybody out there who's listening. And there's much we can be grateful for. So I'm uh, grateful to be your friend and be able to share science with uh, those who are willing to listen. It really is during a time of darkness. uh, One of the most enlightening aspects was meeting so many new friends from different backgrounds that I would have never had a chance to meet. And, you know, you see the best of humanity along with the worst of it. And I think we've really seen a lot of people come forward, and hopefully that number will grow. It's been a couple months since we had you on. What are some of the new observations that are troubling you, new signals you're seeing, or reaffirmation, strengthening of signals the last month or two that you think are important to get out? I think one of the biggest new signals that I'm concerned about is the excess death signals around the world. Granted, you know, we're behind on our our morbidity mortality reporting, the responsible of our own uh, CDC here in the U.S. But as I travel the world, I just returned from a trip to Scandinavia. And it's interesting, even their agencies in some of those regions said they're just going to stop reporting excess death signals. And if you look at the United Kingdom, they've been they've been uh, doing pretty well at keeping up at excess death signals. And and this excess death is in younger populations. And then some of those newer signals are obviously still from the cardiac findings. You know, we've talked about that for a good long while now, but there's more papers uh, continuing to confirm what we know, how that spike protein goes to the heart. Uh, a paper that was finally peer-reviewed and published, uh, a little cell around the heart vessel cells called a pericyte. And you and I have talked about this a long time ago, uh, CD147 receptor, the spike binds to this pericyte, makes the vessels leaky, allows the spike protein in and, and proliferates in the heart. And there are multiple papers now showing the spike protein present in cardiac tissue, binding to these pericytes, binding to the vessels. So these sudden adult deaths, these deaths in in young adults, these, uh, yeah, uh, sudden collapses, whether it's on a a sports field or someone dying in their bed or some healthy, active individual, uh, we we know mechanistically why this is happening. Here's a big concern about this paper is it got peer-reviewed and published. The preprint was over a year and a half ago. (laughs) So to have it signal like this and to have it sit in peer review during a rollout, knowing that we're making the body make this by protein is so illogical. It's almost criminal that these editors would sit on uh, 
such life and death data. So, I mean, that that's one one of the newer things is just we're, we're proving more and more on a day in and day out how much cardiac harm is is present. Um, interestingly, however, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, we look at data from Dr. Mueller out of Switzerland. There was a study in Thailand several months back showing a 2.3% myocarditis rate. And Dr. Mueller in Switzerland replicated the data, and in their data set, 2.8% of individuals had myocarditis. The scary part was four months later when they did uh, enhanced MRIs, these individuals showed SCAR in the heart four months later. So what does that mean for the average person? Well, that SCAR will block it's like putting a clamp on your electrical wires in your house and, and selectively putting clamps around the house on electrical wires, and eventually you're going to short one of those wires. So that's what long-term the potentiality is for the heart and the and the bad outcomes there. So tip of the iceberg, excess death from all causes. We know that younger cohorts, absolutely. Uh, more proven cardiac problems, absolutely. But here's what's interesting. There was a preprint showing the spike binding to the pericytes in the brain. Where is the uh, the uh, final peer review and the final publication on that one? I- again, there's so much being suppressed in the medical literature when in the laboratory setting and university settings and the data sets, we know the problems are happening and why is the information still being suppressed is really concerning to me and should be concerning to every citizen, let alone physician. So what I'm gathering from from your observations here is that initially the concern was, okay, maybe there's a two-week window of circulatory heart-related deaths, um, but you kind of, if you get through that, maybe you should be be good. But what's interesting about these young deaths is that I, I don't have data in front of me, but I think it's pretty obvious that the last number of months there aren't too many young people getting new shots. I mean, to the extent that there's uptake, it's on the endless fourth, fifth, sixth dose of older people. And I want to get to that because that, that in itself is a travesty. But younger people generally aren't getting it now um, in large numbers, yet we're seeing the excess deaths are not declining. And in some data sets, they seem to be going up. And anecdotally, we certain see, certainly see this. So are you saying with your, your analogy with the wires around the house that you know, at first look like, okay, maybe one in 5,000 young adult males might have this problem and maybe one in 10,000 other people. But now, like you said, that was the tip of the iceberg. So with this subclinical myocarditis, does that mean that you could have, I mean, again, I mean, you you do 2.8% of the denominator, 225 million in America alone got uh, at least two shots, uh, 250 million or so got one and who knows how many got three. So you're saying, I mean, that that's millions of people could be taking time bombs. Yeah, and not to be alarmist, but that's the physiology. And we know the more spike your body makes, the higher the risk for these. So, uh, you know, I'm not here to judge, especially in a, a season of kindness and giving. You know, what I am here to say is, look, if you got one, don't get a second. If you got a second, don't get a third. If you got a third, don't get a fourth. Because at this point, we know the harms. It's all risk, zero benefit at this point. It doesn't even cover the variants that are out. I was on the line with some colleagues last night going over, you know, the variants of concern and what what are out there now. 
the, the current shots don't cover what's out there. And, and the coronavirus, as we've discussed before, all coronaviruses will mutate ahead of any of our efforts. So you're really just putting yourself at risk and putting yourself in harm's way at this point. There are early treatments. We've discussed that. But, yeah, that's my concern is long term. You know, we, we go back and look at papers like Dr. Bonsall in the, in the um, Journal of Immunology showing that this spike will circulate in little fat packets called exosomes for up to four months after the body starts making that spike. We know from Dr. Roltkin's study in the journal Cell that at least 60 days, the body still has mm. not only the mRNA sequence in it, but it's still making spike protein. And, and she published... Uh, at two months, I actually have gotten her uh, protocol so we can start replicating some of those in the in the community lab setting. But that that's at least two months. And Bonsall confirmed four months. So we know the spike is circulating in the body for a long time. So if we have an adverse outcome three, four, five, six months later, it's because that spike is still triggering inflammatory pathways, mm. is still causing a subclinical low-grade cardiac harm, neurologic harm. Autoimmune harm is another big one we're finding more about. And so these these processes, because this is a gene-based injection, this is not a, quote, vaccine. It's not a protein-based vaccine. Or even if we go to the protein-based vaccine, the Novavax, you know, having five micrograms of spike, that spike being the toxin, even in that, there's a black box warning for myocarditis just because of the spike. So yes. it, 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 it's, it's a long, persistent uh, it's like having a low-grade poison consistently circulating throughout uh, the body. And to your analogy, ticking time bomb, I hope not. Are there things people can do for their body to prevent these things? Absolutely. But at the same time, one needs to be very aware of any symptoms and not ignore them. No, for sure. And, and jump on it at the beginning, because what I'm gathering from this is that there's really two mechanisms. Number one, it could potentially perpetually be producing new spike, but also even just the original, even if it's only at the time, if you have this subclinical myocarditis, so that seems to rope in. I mean, man, again, this could be one in 40 people, who knows what level. But then to to take that to an even another, a new level, um. I don't really know how to explain so much what troponin is, but the Swiss study you cited seemed to indicate that almost everyone had elevated troponin levels. What are the consequences of that? Yeah, so normally in a, a blood test, we don't see troponin. But when a heart cell is damaged, uh, that troponin is released from the inside of that heart cell. And when it enters circulation, that indicates to us in the laboratory and in the emergency room and in the hospital, that heart muscle is being damaged. So any detection above a certain threshold up to troponin is an indication that heart cells are being harmed. And usually when a patient has a heart attack, we will use that troponin to monitor how much has been released, which kind of gives you a breadth of how many heart cells were hurt in that heart attack or in that cardiac injury. And then we'll watch that for a couple of days and look for the trend going downward, meaning the immediate harm has stopped. And then the secondary reaction after those heart cells are damaged is the inflammatory cells come in and then eventually scarring occurs. But that's, that's a more prolonged process. But that troponin is a very, very, very concerning marker because it tells us with a very high degree of certainty that heart damage is occurring.
and for how long. And that's why we, we track it over several days, especially when that patient is hospitalized. So are you basically telling me that the shots on the market that are still being promoted like anything in 49 out of 50 states, um, on all age groups, in all in 49 out of 50 states, by the way, um, nothing has changed policy-wise, commensurate with the information coming out. But before we get into any other organ system, and there's a lot to get into, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, the things that we're discovering is unimaginable. But just from heart alone, you're saying that we have a Swiss study that 100% of their sample size showed a marker that indicates at least short-term heart damage to some level caused by the shot. Correct. And then almost, let's see, it was almost 60% showed long-term scarring thereafter in a smaller uh, subset of that study, 11 out of 16. So yes, almost 100% end up showing some indicators of heart damage. And then thereafter, you know, because of that troponin, then thereafter, a uh, high percentage ends up showing, unfortunately, yeah, I, I, heart damage is happening. That's that's the bottom line here. Heart damage is happening. It, it, it's funny because you know I'm I'm in, into wires now because I've had audio issues with my with my broadcast at times, and it's like you could have a. Uh, a, a kink in in the wire, and you never know. Sometimes it won't be a problem for many years. Sometimes it will never be a problem, but sometimes it will get you out of nowhere. And that's what it kind of looks like is happening, that certainly not everyone with an elevated troponin level is going to die, but when you start seeing all these sudden deaths, it doesn't take a, a imaginatory person to realize that, wow, um, yeah, I mean, maybe this is more than just a two to four week problem. This is something that could potentially get people down the road. And so I'm getting a lot of questions. And I don't know if there's a good answer because you have insurance issues, you have, uh, you know, doctors need to refer this. But typical question I get a lot of people in my audience um, themselves or family members got the original two. And, you know, then they realized, oh, man, that was that was a mistake. So they didn't get any more. They got a long time ago, maybe a year and a half ago, maybe a year and three quarters. And, you know, they didn't see any issues, apparent issues. Are there any diagnostic tests that you would recommend to see if there's anything festering? You know, that's a good question. So that troponin is more of an acute test we use in the acute injury setting. You know, in the long-term setting, just understanding where your other blood markers are or aren't is, is, is always important. You know, what's your vitamin D level? The, the more normal your vitamin D level, the less inclined you are to uh, have a clotting disorder. Most people don't know that one of the best anti-clotting agents there is is having a normal vitamin D level. Um, microclotting is obviously another concern. Now, D-dimer is one that we look at in more the acute clotting setting. The good news, and, and I want to sound hopeful here because those who got that initial one or two and are pretty far out, like you mentioned, from, from that initial injection, you know, they're, the, the body is resilient. A lot of people, I want to say that, you know, initial rounds of injections were Many of them were duds because they mm. weren't kept in the cold chain, a lot of degradation. Yeah. You know, those individuals went on to get COVID anyway. So the hopeful message is, hey, 
this was poor manufacturing. A lot of people got a dud. A lot of people are fine. That's fantastic. Um, looking at a basic complete blood count, um, looking at where your red and white blood cell counts are, your platelet counts are, looking at your metabolic panel, making sure that everything is in normal range there. Uh, those are the basic things. But you're usually going to see those heart markers in um, in the acute setting. Now, there are other things like uh, basic naturetic uh, peptide, other things that are a little more esoteric. If you're not having symptoms, then chances are, you know, you're okay, especially if you're that one, one and a half years out. So on that point, um, we still don't have a good answer to this, but we've always been wondering from day one, have you or others ever done biochemical distribution analysis of these vials to see, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the variance, because from what you're describing and what we're seeing in the literature, there's like over 14,000 categories of maladies and injuries in VAERS. It affects every organ system. We're going to get into reproduction, uh, cancers, hey, umbilical cord. There's nothing that this thing doesn't touch. So how does it not kill everyone? And the theory was maybe some of it's the storage uh, the you know the way the needle was placed in is questions about that put it in directly to the bloodstream or not different variables but certainly one of them is going to be um you know were they all sort of kind of just experimenting and different distribution ha- 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 have you shed light on that at all you know i i have to a degree so again go goes back to the basic manufacturing these were ramped up very quickly the fda isn't inspecting the, these facilities this was an experimental product um, to ramp up manufacturing of a product like this as quickly as we did. Uh, you know, I've worked with uh, quietly behind the scenes some physicists, analytical chemists. We've looked at the vials. Some of them have higher concentrations of um, lipids, and uh, some have lower, some have more polyethylene glycol, some have less. There's, uh, you know, certainly none of these, you know, heebie-jeebie creepy things that, you know, the the tinfoil people want to say are in them. There's no graphene oxide in these. Those are cholesterol crystals. These people don't know what they're looking at under the microscope. But, but, but the, you know, the vial um, purity varies from lot to lot. And then, you know, in the early uh, push for the vaccinations or the injections, people lined up in hot stadiums. And, you know, once that needle goes in a vial, it oxidizes the contents and they start to degrade. And they sat out at warm temperatures, so a lot of people dodged the bullet and, and got basically a bolus of sludge into their arm. That's good news. So there really wasn't a whole lot of sequence in there that could replicate. Now, the other thing to consider is some people are more metabolically active than others. The biodistribution studies that we do know of, especially the early ones that were FOIA'd out of Japan, do show that that lipid nanoparticle can go everywhere. So those that did get the potent full dose, um, that lipid nanoparticle, it will go everywhere. It slips through every crack under every door in the body. That that pericyte example is one of them. It, it just wraps vessels, opens the door into the vessels and allows allows that spike to go through and, and into the tissues. So um, that spike literally can go everywhere. It has a predilection to concentrate in certain parts of the body, the bone marrow, the spleen, uh, adrenal gland, uh, ovaries, etc. So that spike can go anywhere and everywhere because the lipid nanoparticle is carrying that sequence that makes your cell make that spike. So 
it, that that's the problem. I, not the spike goes everywhere, the mRNA and the lipid go everywhere, and and then secondarily, then your your cells in any organ become the manufacturer of that spike protein. There was a good study by Dr. Hageman, European Journal of Immunology, that showed the cells that are making that spike protein are now an enemy to your immune system. And he proved in his study that any cell making the spike was secondarily now a target of immune cell attack because your body doesn't like the cells that are making that spike. Have you confirmed anything more with autopsies or do you know other pathologists that have been able to get a hold of people who died suddenly to make more discoveries? It's it's just shocking that it's gone on yeah. this long without more info. I was recently overseas in um at a large meeting and met with several of my colleague pathologists. I was in Scandinavia this last weekend, met with another pathologist from Sweden and here, this is a large frustration of mine. Um, between the, all of us, we, there's a protocol now that exists. Any lab and every lab in the world should be doing it on any of these sudden deaths. To not do so is, I think, uh, professionally negligent. Um, and historically, the coroners and medical examiner's offices would always investigate deaths for unknown cause. I mean, there are, there are people that have a chronic condition, pass away, the coroner, the doctors say, okay, this was their chronic condition, they passed from that. But in these unexplained deaths, historically, I mean, going back hundreds of years since the coroner, meaning the crown's system, and back in, in ancient Europe, the crown would send forth and do a death examination, and, and then there would be death taxes collected. But it was the job of that crown uh, representative, that coroner, to look at the death, suspicious or not. And it, it was part of their accounting as well as taxation, as well as, you know, their their CSI of the day as well, as it were. But for eons, it's been the responsibility when there's an unknown cause of death to investigate. And pathologists around the world are not doing so. I've received multiple more as I've been traveling that are stacked up here. Sadly, I've got to catch up on them over the next week. I will. And what we are finding is in these tissues that spike protein not only is present, but it persists. So in some of these vaccine deaths, these are um, cases I've gone over with Dr. Burkhardt out of Germany, another doctor I can't name out of Germany, another I can't name, and another out of another country I can't name because they'll get fired. But quietly behind the scenes uh, doing the examinations, that spike is present in the lining of the blood vessels. The spike is present on the outside of the blood vessels. That spike is present in the spleen. That spike is present in the liver. I've seen aortas dissected and burst open in sudden death mm. um, because that spike goes into the aorta. The lymphocytes come in, chew a hole through the wall of you know the largest blood vessel in your body coming off of your heart. And once that ruptures, it's game over within minutes. Uh, we see the spike protein in the cardiac tissue. We see the spike protein not only in the blood vessels of the brain, but out into the tissues of the brain. We see it wow. in the core of the adrenal gland. This is why we're seeing so much you know, fatigue. That spike protein will go in the cells and actually get inside the nucleus of many of the cells of our body. It will get into the mitochondria of our body. And that's the little engine, the powerhouse of every cell in your body. And that's another reason for fatigue. So it is widespread and diffuse. And how do we know that it's from the shot and not from the disease? Well, if it were from a virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, then we would see the nucleocapsid antibodies also staining mm. in these tissues. That's missing. So we have a, a great internal control. If it were 
the infection. And, and you know, there have been some, some autopsy studies published where they show the persistence of the virus in the body for a long time as well. And in some of those studies, they showed it was whole virus. They did both spike and nucleocapsid, and it was whole virus. So, you know, we have to be scientifically honest. Is it there or isn't it there? Is it just spike or is it spike and nucleocapsid? So you can, you can split out the difference between this is a persistent spike protein from an injection and not from an infection. And it also makes sense because we're seeing so many more published studies now on organ rejection, a spike causing oh organ God. rejection. I just saw it in a lung, uh, a paper on lung transplants. Uh, so, you know, that's got to kind of indicate that it's going everywhere. Well, and this is the tragedy with that. All these transplant centers saying they won't see a patient or won't <laughs> allow a patient to get a transplant unless they get a shot. And now we know, I mean, that cornea study that from, um, I believe it was Japan, and, and patients who had had a corneal transplant years before, after they get the shot, because of the modulation of our immune system, now the immune system targets old transplant tissues. And, and I think we're going to, unfortunately, going forward, see, unfortunately, those on transplant lists, we have a high percentage of the population who have received the injection. Uh, some of those will pass and will be organ donors. And I'm an organ donor. I'm, I'm grateful people donate organs for those who need them. But... But I, I'm afraid we're going to see higher rates of rejection because of what we've done to an entire world population in modulating our innate immune response. And you know, that early paper from FOSA showing innate immune system modulation, and then the paper from Jen Quinn that showed uh, it was an, a lipid with an mRNA for a flu, but each pup in her four successive litters had the same gene expression profile, meaning after she got a shot with a lipid nanoparticle and an mRNA sequence, her immune system was different. And every generational pup thereafter also had that same new imprint. So we modulate the immune response potentially for a lifetime, hopefully not, but we're modulating it to a degree that now we don't know what the immune system is or isn't going to do long term. And again, I don't mean to sound like, yep. you know, the sky is falling. I'm just observing what has sure. been studied and what has been reported, which is another indication that we need to stop this immediately. Every shot everywhere in the world needs to be stopped immediately with this technology. And it's not just about COVID. You know, these manufacturers are like, hey, we're working on a lipid nanoparticle RSV vaccine. We're working on a flu one. We're working on 15 others. Well, why? This, we, we've already shown that this is incredibly damaging to the human body. We, we don't have those long-term required studies that one would normally have in vaccinology. And we're going willy-nilly forward with a technology that's showing massive harm signals and there is no indication other than these corrupt agencies and pharmaceutical companies trying to push for constant emergencies so they can keep using this experimental technology and platform and harm the human body and the human population indefinitely. That's my biggest concern. So, I mean, it's it's multiple things. It's that the spike could potentially not be turned off. It's that it goes everywhere. The subclinical myocarditis could get you later you know, later on, what, what, what does the immune system do to you long-term? So the other big thing long-term, obviously, 
are cancers. And, yeah. you know, you were one of the first to, to go there. And, and that was like something people really, oh man, you know, people really didn't want to hear that because that, you know, is going to be, if it's true, would be with you for a very, very long period of time. Um, you know, I was just reading from this Dr. Charles Hoff from British Columbia, and he's warning about T-cell lymphoma, uh, you know, being turbocharged, that he's seeing, um, you know, all, all sorts. Like he would basically take, uh, I guess, uh, PET and CT scans and, uh, you know, just over a short period of time see rapid growth. Um, could you describe a little bit what with what T cell lymphoma is, and you know why that would be turbocharged from the shots, and what other cancers you're concerned are being caused by the shots? Yeah, so that that's a great question, and and again, I've received plenty of grief for telling the truth. When in pathology, our job is to observe. We are the quality control of all of medicine. We see changes in patterns societally because day in and day out, we see lots of patients through the microscope, tell people the pathologist is the most important doctor you will never meet that you always, you always hope is correct. That's our job. And so when we see a shift in patterns and say, gosh, you know, I usually only see this many melanomas. Why am I seeing more? And gosh, why are they in younger patients or, or this type of cancer or that type of cancer or this type of infection or that type of infection? That's what we do in the laboratory. And then these get reported to, you know, different state systems that go up to the federal systems. So in each country, they have their reporting systems. And, and that's part of the job of the CDC to be reporting morbidity and mortality changes. Well, a T-cell lymphoma, so you and I have 30 billion T-cells in circulation in our blood right now as we sit here and talk. Everybody listening does. And those T-cells have multiple jobs. And one of their main jobs is to surveil the body day in and day out and shake hands with every cell in your body. A certain type of cell does that and says, hey, are you a friend or a foe? And if it's a cell with a gene break in it or a typical uh, proteins on the surface says, hey, you're a foreigner. I'm going to poke a hole in you, throw a hand grenade in and blow you up. So we get rid of those early cancer cells. Now, the problem is there were some studies done showing that the spike protein can get into our own T cells and it doesn't need an ACE2 receptor to to do this. It, there's another receptor called an LF1 receptor. So the spike can get into the nucleus of these T cells. Now, now these are your Marines, and all of a sudden, now you've poisoned your own Marines because what happens, every cell in our body, every now and then, you can get a little tear in your DNA. And we have little zippers that say, okay, I'm just going to zip that little tear right back together. When the spike protein gets into these cells, it blocks that DNA repair mechanism. So, you know, if I go out and get a sunburn, I have a, a little enzyme, a thymidine dimer, a little zipper, and it just says, oh, okay, that cell's a little damaged. I'm going to zip it back together after my, my sunburn. What's happening in the human body is because of this spike protein, all these little repair mechanisms are being inhibited. So there are T-cell lymphomas. That's where you get uh, local overgrowth of a, a malignant T-cell that's landed in one area of the body or in a, a lymph node. Then there are T-cell leukemias. Those are your circulating mm. um, T-cells. So leukemia and lymphoma are slightly different in the sense that the leukemic cells are, are your circulating cells gone bad. And then lymphomas are localized lymph nodes or 
lymphoid collections within certain organs or parts of the body. There was, there's a really good paper, and, and the imaging is impressive on this one. It's If you look up um, angioplastic T-cell lymphoma post-booster, this patient, the images, again, we're on a podcast, so I can't show the picture, but a few weeks after this poor gentleman's booster, you can see on that PET scan where he has a fairly big full-body burden of of tumor throughout his body, but three weeks later, it's quadrupled in size. And it's because this spike protein is altering all of these mechanisms. And so things the body would normally do to repair itself, it can't. Now, that's the tip of the iceberg. The spike protein we know will bind to a breast cancer gene called BRCA. More importantly, it binds to um, there's a, a family of genes called the P53 family of genes. I know many of my colleagues have talked on your show about it yeah. before. That's the garden of our genome. But these regulatory pathways that normally say, okay, I, I'm not going to proliferate. I'm going to, I'm going to just stay an atypical cell, wait for the immune systems to kill me off. When, when this P53 pathway gets activated, now these cancer cells Basically, it's like the enemies through the gate. They start replicating so quickly because that gene has changed pathways inside the cell that say, hey, grow, grow, grow. And they do. And now our T cells are weakened. They don't know how to fight it. So it's a synergistic one-two punch, just allowing those hordes pouring through the gate to start becoming a, a big maling- a dragon-like malignancy very quickly. I was on the phone with an oncologist last night, and, and you know, certainly we're seeing some cancers due to delay to treatment because so many clinics were closed or too many patients were afraid to go to the doctor. That's certainly going to be one of the signals. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you could, uh, you know, isolate that variable and still, you know, hypothesize that the the shots themselves, independent of the lockdowns, are turbocharging cancers. But you're saying it's the it's the timeline. Well, yeah, it's the timeline. So certainly some of the cancers can and should be attributed to delay to treatment, no doubt. But what we see normally in cancers is a slow progression over time. So we know types of cancers, what their long-term outcomes generally are, you know, with treatment. So oncologists can predict, okay, this type of cancer, I'm going to do this protocol, this patient's chances are this with this long of a, you know, a life cycle beyond the diagnosis. Well, talking to my colleague last night out of Texas, what he said he's seeing and, and it was after the rollouts of the shots. These are cancers that he would normally be able to treat and manage very, very regularly in terms of what he's seen in his practice over three decades. What's happening is after these boosters are had, and, and it's usually after shot two, three, or four. And again, it's that cumulative effect of having excess spike. So it's not just the, the DNA repair. It's not just the T cell downregulation. It's not just the cancer gene binding. It's also damage to mitochondria because cancer likes to grow in a low oxygen environment. Mm. And so the, the cell respiration is lower when mitochondria are damaged. Uh, there's inhibition of other pathways, KRAS pathways, and all sorts of other, you know, esoteric pathways I could go into that the spike is also uh, causing changes in. 
Uh, in addition to that, microclotting, microclotting is still happening in, in many individuals. And again, now you're choking off areas of the body to oxygen. And again, a low oxygen environment, low energy environment, DNA uh, repair inhibition, T cells going to mm. sleep and not being able to. That's kind of a swamp for mosquitoes, like the equivalent of a swamp for mosquitoes is a swamp for cancer. It's a perfect storm. And this is why the cancer behavior is different. And I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. There's about a dozen dozen mechanisms at the very least. And you and I are working on a quiet project behind the scenes, and I'll send you a list of about 20 mechanisms. And so it's easily explainable as to why a normal cancer that we would expect and see in medicine and know the treatment thereof and have a a good prediction for outcomes is behaving in a completely different manner. And, and even talking to my colleague last night, he's like, Oh, that's why this patient is doing that because he put two and two together as we went through some of these last night and he realized certain pathways that he's able to control with certain of his therapies aren't responding because the ability to respond has been eliminated. You're saying like hormone therapy, immunotherapy, things like that. A lot of them. Yeah, all of them added up. Yeah. So one cancer that may respond to a certain hormonal therapy. Well, you know, we've talked about toll-like receptors before, little pattern receptors. These tumors aren't expressing the same markers that they would normally see. I've, I've had an interesting pattern in the lab in the last couple of weeks. So some of these lymphomas that I see, you can usually say, okay, this lymphoma says I have this marker, this marker, this marker. I'm categorized as said lymphoma. But what I'm finding is they have those normal markers that helps them put a, us put them into a category. But now they're expressing other proteins and you scratch your head and go, wait, this lymphoma shouldn't be showing these surface proteins that are different. And so I'm seeing so much overlap that everything is now like this atypical lymphoid proliferative disorder that you can't pigeonhole into any one category because so many things are going wrong in these metabolic pathways. So, I mean, I'm getting a little nerdy here, but at the end of the day, there are countless mechanisms of harm from the spike protein. The sad thing is we still have governments around the world. We have our own military insisting people get a shot that doesn't work for viruses that are now extinct and variants <laughs> that are now extinct that can harm the human body. So it is all risk, zero benefit. The only data set I saw when I was in Norway this weekend was one from one colleague that said, you know, the signal I see of benefit is in 85 and older in terms of acquiring virus and or being sick from virus. However, it's negated by all the cardiac harms. So even <laughs> and, and the cardiologist, a, a world famous one that we all know. And and so he said, so basically, at the end of the day, there's no benefit and all risk in all categories. So, yes, why we have bureaucrats dictating medicine, why we have policymakers pretending that they're physicians, you know, have any of them sit down and have a conversation with me for one hour. And, you know, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion. Still, that's a problem we have. But if they'll sit down and I can do a basic science lecture in layman's terms, I think they would be shocked. And when we have our agencies continuing to put out false data sets, and then rolling back what they said months later saying, oh, yeah, you know, Walensky, well, we lied on that one. Well, we withheld the data on that one. Well, we weren't doing our job, and and we withheld two years of data from the American people. When you can't trust your government and the people that are responsible for your 
your life and the health and wellness of a society, then it becomes the duty of the individual to protect themselves from mm. corruption. And it becomes the duty of those of us in medicine, in spite of how much we get attacked, to protect humanity. Okay, so as always, I'm, I'm going to have a lot left on my list where we're not going to have time for it. But one thing I do have to get to, because it's probably the most common question that people want answered, and you probably don't have a full answer yet, but I'm curious if anything new has developed. Everyone wants to know, okay, I didn't get the shot. Does this thing potentially shed? Yes. Yes, and, and very easily, so that Bonsall Journal of Immunology paper, so we exhale exosomes. So we know exosomes um, accumulate and circulate, and we can exhale them. We know it's in body secretions. That was from early studies with the infection in uh, individuals in the Wuhan subway. It was in their sweat. The spike protein was in their sweat. We know from a recent article in JAMA that the mRNA alone makes it all the all the way to the breast milk. So not only is that mRNA being shed, but certainly the spike protein is being shed. Thankfully, um, with some colleagues in a couple of different states, finally have an assay we're validating where we're going to be able to test multiple different body fluids uh, down to the picogram level. I wish we could go down to the femtogram level. So here's the other counter argument I have to the worry some people have about spike shedding. And this is most of us have had COVID. Those of us who never got a shot and had COVID, we have immunity in our sinuses, in our tears, in our throat with secretory IgA. So if you're being shed upon and some viral particle or spike comes into your body, you should have the ability to neutralize that. So I think the bigger concern, so a lot of people will say, gosh, I feel sick when I'm about <laughs> around a bunch of people recently got jabbed and I don't deny what they're everyone saying. says that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't noticed I, it or thought about it, but there are a lot more elements around, but from what you're saying, there would be a difference between concerns about you're going to get heart inflammation versus maybe they are becoming spreaders of like juiced up RSV that, yeah, that could probably affect that's my bigger concern. So yeah. when people are around individuals that have, you know, had multiple shots, what else is happening? These individuals, because of all the immune suppression we talked about, they're petri dishes for multiple other viruses. Had a question from a colleague that does health at a university, and she's seeing so many sick college patients with influenza A, with metanumavirus, with RSV. And that's because these individuals were forced to get three shots to come back to their university, you know, number one and two plus a booster. They're immune suppressed. Now they're literally sitting ducks for any and every virus that their immune system would normally keep in check. So I think what we're seeing even more so, and I, I'm, I'm just kind of conjecturing here, but it, it makes logical sense based on the amount of positivity we're seeing in emergency rooms, urgent cares, et cetera, is all of these other viruses are rampant now because we've suppressed the immune system of a population now everybody is potentially a walking Petri dish, and those of us who haven't had these shots and get exposed to those individuals, they're carrying those viruses at other levels. So they're literally potentially shedding onto you another infection. And I think, I think more logically, that's probably what's happening. I'm, does the spike shed? You bet it does. Can it shed in a quantity that it's going to mm. cause you all the harm that so many people say they're experiencing? I'm very dubious of that. I'm doubtful. Yes. And, and not, Unless not perhaps you're 
a young child of a parent that's constantly touched, which most people aren't by other people, because there we have studies that they seem to to have a spike that's not related to the pathogen, uh, non-nucleocapsid. Um, we had, right. I forget who's the author of that study. So, right. so but, that, but, but that's intense, like an intense degree and time frame of contact. Contact, absolutely. And that's more logical that then you're getting a consistent, persistent dose. Absolutely. Because I think that's something we need to watch out with in terms of a control group making analyses. We see a lot of disturbing trends among toddlers and whatever. And everyone's like, well, you know, very few got the shot. But that's that's kind of the concern there. Well, most of their parents probably did, but a regular person, you pass a crowd. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, look, you gotta you gotta live your life, and you know, it's just the respiratory viruses are are a concern. But that's where we gotta get get up on our D and C and other supplements and K two selenium and things like that. Weight, sugars, lose weight, cut the sugars, exercise. A great great cohort study out of the UK showing. And they studied almost 340,000 people. You know, if you exercise, and I don't mean go lift weights and go get a six-pack of abs and all that. I mean, just go out and walk in the sunshine. Decreased uh, severity in hospitalization. I was like 30 or 40%. It was uh, incredibly significant. Just basic things for basic health. Um, okay, so so final thing here. You know, obviously, there's things people know about. People understand heart, cancer, strokes. Um, autoimmune problems, immune suppression, and it does all of that. But then there's things that we can only begin to start imagining, especially when you look at the reproductive system, future generations. Um, I wanted to share with the audience while you're on with us, because this is well beyond my understanding, just to get, give a give an explanation of what this might mean. Uh, it's from Trial Site News, scientists affiliated with microbiology, pathology, and school of medicine at University of Alabama at Birmingham. They led an investigation into the impact of so both previous SARS-CoV-2 infection and uh, vaccination on CD34 hematopoietic stem cell uh, uh, progenitor cells, HSPCs, and umbilical cord blood, and they found that among those vaccinated, the total numbers of CD34 cells drastically reduced fourfold in the vaccinated donor group. Why would that be concerning? What does that mean? Okay, what this means, so your stem cells, these are, these are your unicorn cells of the body. They can become anything that your body needs at any point. So they're basically, you know, the cell like a chameleon. Okay, I'm going to turn red, I'm going to turn blue, I'm going to turn green, whatever. These cells are critically important for forming other cells in the body. So in your bone marrow, you have stem cell lines that become your red cells, stem cell lines that become your platelet-producing cells, stem cell lines that become your white blood-producing cells, and all the different types of white blood cells um, in any tissue damage in the body. uh, Stem cell fibroblasts are going to heal and stem cells and blood vessels are going to help regrow damaged vessels if you get, you know, a laceration or a cut. Stem cells are present throughout the body and they help regenerate injured tissues, help produce the circulating blood cells of your body. What does this mean long term? We don't know is the honest answer. In the short term, not having the ability to have that basic magical cell that can help you regenerate when injured and or infected and or harmed is alarming. 
And again, it goes to that spike protein from these shots causing harm to the basic cells of life. Stem cells are cells of life. And so goes your damage to stem cells. So goes your ability to have a robust, healthy immune system, healthy body, healthy organs, healthy tissues over time. So this finding, obviously, it's an early finding. It was an umbilical stem cell cord blood. And those are kind of like the holy grail of stem cells. They're I mean, those are the holy grail of stem cells because those pure, innocent stem cells are saved for future transplants for, you know, say, people will store their cord blood for, you know, a potential sibling that needs a transplant down the road, a a bone marrow transplant, or will store them for themselves just out of precaution. Um, So those, those stem cells that come from that purest form of innocent new life are the purest of stem cells. And to see them drastically drop to humanity, we are doing something horrific to the biology of of the world. And again, is it short-term? I hope so. Is it long-term? We don't know. And this is where the precautionary principle in medicine and science should always be honored. And we, we did not honor that using this experimental injection on billions of people on the planet Earth. So this is a very concerning finding. It's very scientific. The graphs are, are very clear to see within that article. And to have those type of cells injured even short-term could lead to potential other infections and potential um, colonizations of other microbes and bacteria in the human body because we don't have enough of a response. It could lead even to... Um, malformation and and repair of organisms. It can lead to so many things. So what does it mean long-term? Well, those are some of the potentialities. (laughs) What does it mean now? We don't know, but it's a bad sign. It's a bad signal. And again, it's, it's another straw that broke the camel's back that was broken a long time ago that these shots need to be stopped everywhere in the world. So I can't walk away from this without just putting this all together and asking, I, this doesn't make sense. If you put everything you said right now together and we just scraped the surface, there's so much more on my list. We can go on and on more deep into reproductive stuff. What I don't understand is this doesn't reek of a rushed shot, a botched shot, a you know a shot with a lack of oversight. Am I wrong? How does this happen by accident? This looks like something that... You had to have carefully decided that I'm going to wage war on global biology, on the human race. I, I don't, you know what I'm saying? I, I don't see a middle ground here. That's what I, I don't understand. Is there a way you could just say, yeah, it was just kind of like lack of quality control? It doesn't seem that way. Well, it, that's the frustration for me is. Go back and watch the Milken Institute interview with Fauci and Rick Bright. If you just type Fauci, Bright, Milken, you'll find it on YouTube. And they're bemoaning, oh, how long it takes to get a traditional vaccine to market. Gosh, if we had a pandemic, we could emergency authorize this new mRNA technology and give it a try. So it sounds like it was just a freaking roll of the dice. They've been working on it for years. Borla said in an interview with The Washington Post, gosh, you know, we... we 
we didn't have any experience with mRNA, and his scientists pushed it on him for whatever reason. Moderna never brought a safe mRNA product to market, to human market, because it could never get to human market because they were always dangerous. So we have two large companies being given carte blanche by a bunch of uh, medical technocrats that have no scruples about experimenting on humanity. Literally, boldface saying in an interview, I want to I want to say maybe October 2019, I don't remember, or even before that, maybe earlier 2019, but they're at that institute having this panel discussion, and they're just bragging about, gosh, if we had an emergency, we could, could just roll this thing out on humanity and see what happens. Just like the editor of uh, New England Journal said, well, I guess we just have to try it on the kids and see what happens. It's this cavalier attitude and loss of compassion for humanity saying it's okay to try something experimental. I agree with you. It's almost as, as though all humanity went away from from most of medicine. And then the rest of medicine was blinded and brainwashed into thinking, okay, they said so, so we better do so, which is crazy, I know. But here we have doctors still brainwashed into thinking that this is safe and effective when it's absolutely op the opposite. I can't explain behind the scenes, you know, what governmental forces, what DOD forces that were experimenting on this, what intelligence agency forces, et cetera, and, and lockstep around the world, all of it happening all at once and everybody agreeing to it. You know, when I was in Norway this weekend, they're like, hey, all countries never do everything at the same time at once. You know, this has never happened in humanity. So there are, there are larger forces. I can't prove anything. I can certainly connect some dots and conjecture but what we have done to humanity is shameful. The fact that any physician within the sound of my voice is still willing to give uh, an experimental injection with all these harms into the human body of a fellow human being is reprehensible. And this is something that needs to be stopped. I, I, I know you and I could go, you know, off air and discuss, you know, what some of those dots to connect are. But at the, at the end of the day, I'm grateful that a lot of people are okay. I hope long-term the body is an amazing thing. It can be very resilient. Yep. I'm hoping we continue to find help and cures for those who have been harmed because countless individuals sure. have been harmed. And I've reached out where I can to help. I know you have that compassion for humanity. You've had many of them on. And I continue to work with them as we're still trying to tease out all these mechanisms and try to figure out the cures. So on a day of Thanksgiving, I still want to give thanks for the fact that there are good people doing good things. You're one of them, a voice for truth, a voice for freedom, a voice for for logic and compassion. And you've done so much for so many people, allowing us to share our voices. And so let's remember gratitude amidst all this, you know, scary stuff. Yes. And we still listen to this. Uh, before you have a stomach full of turkey, not afterwards. It is hard to stomach, but again, knowledge is power, truth is power, and it's better than being in the dark. And you've really enlightened so many people, um, brought it down to a level that that people could understand, and and that's what you need. You know, until now we were just walking in the dark, and I think now we have a lot of ammo that gives us thought about, hey, this is not the first time we've been lied to. And, you know, maybe perhaps this will be the surgery we always needed to do on pharma and the corrupt medical industry um, for years before this. But this was the straw that broke the camel's back because of people like you and your colleagues. We got to do this again. This was so much fun. Happy Thanksgiving and God bless. 
Dr. Ryan Cole there for you. you Uh, We did almost a full hour, so we've gone super overtime, but you're not going to be with me for the rest of the week. So I figured I'd give you a little bit more. It truly is amazing to think about um, how all two-legged creatures could kind of be the same as humans, but we're not. Look at a man like Ryan Cole and look at every other doctor you know, or most doctors you probably know, and it's like, wow, both are human beings. One's living up to his potential, and one is subverting humanity more than any other creation could possibly do. And, you know, obviously, (laughs) it wasn't easy to stomach all that, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But we we know already this is what's happening. Um, This is what gain-of-function does. I mean, gain-of-function, this was years' worth of studying to see how to uh, reduce the global population. And, again, sometimes it looks like it's hopeless. But at the end of the day, that can only harm us to the extent God allows it to happen. And sometimes he does allow it to happen. That's his judgment. But we have to at least show that we're not happy with it. And we want to get better. We want to stand for something that is rooted in godly truths. And maybe in that merit that we fight back against it, God will have mercy on us. And and that's the thing. You look at our social, fiscal, physical health, the security ills, every ill amountable, it appears insurmountable. But nothing is insurmountable for God. It's never too late to turn to him for his providence. That's why we have a supreme leader we can turn to in a time of great peril like this at its foundation why we are so thankful and why our forefathers were so thankful and, and, and had a thanksgiving because only that supreme being could deal with problems of this magnitude. And and finally, I'm, I'm thankful for all of you guys as well. I would be just a lunatic nobody raving if you wouldn't listen to me. And that's how we even have a little bit of influence. So again, over Thanksgiving, send this show to everyone you know everyone you know there's so much more from where this comes from we try to do different than anyone else we go in depth we did this a lot at the beginning of the year we focused on a lot of other political issues we came back to this for this week we're gonna have to move on to other political issues but you can't move on from this issue you cannot listen to this show thinking that oh you know i'm just gonna focus on abortion as being pro-life but nothing else this is a much bigger pro-life issue again because you can't avoid it this is coercive um, heck, it even sheds. But, you know, interesting. He put a nice spin on that where he thinks it is a problem, to what degree. Um, someone like Ryan is is just so rare to come by. A, a man one in a thousand, um, as it says in Ecclesiastes. And that's that's really what he is. I'm so thankful for him, thankful for you. Hope you guys had, have a terrific time with your family. Um, you know, and and tank up on not just turkey but spirituality as well and we will be here on the other side to cover you in that final sprint at the end of the year god bless y'all and thank you for listening